following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Well, we're in Ezra chapter 4 today, and uh, hopefully we can get the, get the slides up, and uh, we're continuing our series to the book of Ezra. But before we, before we read the text... Um, you know, one of the worst tricks that our depraved minds tend to play on us is that we, we oftentimes lose perspective on our hardships. And we see this in a comical way in kids sometimes, right? So, you know, have you ever watched a kid freak out about the smallest injury? You know, they got a little, a little slice in their finger and, and, and they act like the world is coming to end. You know, and, and, and they're, they're screaming, they're crying, and, and they're like, Dad, am I going to die? And you, know, you kind of look at them, you're trying not to laugh. And they're like, no, buddy, it's just a little cut. You're going to be just fine. And of course, we, we do that as well on a, you know, as adults. It's not just kids that can be silly and, 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 and get ridiculous. You know, I, I mean, the story I, I like to tell in illustration sometimes is I remember... A number of times trying to get my kids to go to sleep when they're infants. You know, and maybe some of you remember this. You know, it's like 2 a.m., you're bouncing this kid, and he refuses to go to sleep. And, and you begin to believe, you know, your mind is foggy, it's 2 in the morning, and you begin to believe this kid is never going to go to sleep. And I'm going to stand here and bounce, and I'm never going to go to sleep either. And I'm going to stand here and bounce this kid the rest of my life. And you really begin to believe that sort of thing. And on a more serious level, uh, we oftentimes, in in serious times of of heartache, despair because we believe things like, I am the only one who has ever faced this. Nobody knows what I'm going through. This is the worst thing ever. And this is never going to end. But but those thoughts are, are rarely true, are they? And therefore, a little perspective goes a long way towards settling our minds and giving us direction as we endure whatever trial it may be. And that's what the narrator is going to provide for us in Ezra chapter 4. Now, now I'll tell you up front that this is one of the most confusing chapters in Ezra. probably is the most confusing section of the book. And that's because the narrator is going to bounce among several events over a period of, of roughly 90 years. So, so the chronology of this, of this section is a little bit hard to follow at times. And if you don't catch the chronological jumps in the story, that, then you're probably going to have a hard time following what's going on. But, but if you keep the chronology organized, then it makes a lot of sense. And, and really, it's a very encouraging and helpful chapter. Now, now you might wonder, well, well, why does he do that? You know, why... Why do the Bible authors at times have to be so confusing and make it so hard? But, but the simple answer is, is that the author, of, of the narrator of the text, wants to give us perspective for trials. And he knew that we are prone to think that the sky is falling. And we need to learn how to keep our trials in perspective. So, so that said, uh, let's jump into the text. And the story begins in verses 1 through 3 
with a bold stand. So, so Ezra chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' households and said to them, Let us build with you, for we like you seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. But we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Now, remember where we left off in chapter 3, all right? So we've got our timeline here that we've been referencing. And we left off last week, it's 536 B.C., all right? So, so we're right in here, and, and Zerubbabel has just led the first return of the exiles from Persia, or from Babylon, uh, back to the land of Jerusalem. And uh, Cyrus is king, that's important to remember as we go ahead. And, and the Jews have just finished laying the foundation of their new temple. And uh, remember that chapter 3, verse 13 says that after they laid the foundation of their new temple, they had a huge party. They had a big celebration, and they were rejoicing in God's goodness, and they were so loud, it says, that, that the, the sound was heard far away. So this was a big party. And chapter 4, verse 1 opens by saying that the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, they literally heard the people. So, so they hear this celebration, and they're curious. And the news of this new building project begins to spread throughout the entire region of, of the world there. And, uh, and of course, we kind of do the same thing, right? You know, we see a new building going up, a, a new business, and we want to know who's coming. What business is coming into town? When are they going to open? You know, I've listened to some of the ladies get so excited about Old Navy coming to Apple Valley this week. And like, it's a big deal. And, and, and so we get, we get excited about stuff like this. And, but, but the people here, you know, they're not just merely curious about some new, you know, new structure being built. No, instead, verse 1 of the text warns that they are enemies of the Jews. And these people, they tell us a little bit more about themselves in verse 2 when they say, they say, let us build with you, for we like you seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. Now, now that statement uh, tells us about these people, and, and to really understand what they're saying here, we need to turn in our Bibles back to 2 Kings 17. Alright, so turn back to 2 Kings 17, because this text is going to provide some really important context, um, not just for, for our text today, but for the entirety of, of Ezra, Nehemiah, and frankly, for a lot of the New Testament. So, so remember, we talked a couple weeks ago about the fact that, that the nation of Israel was split into two nations. And, and we read a couple weeks ago about how in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came in and they defeated the southern kingdom of Judah and took the, the, Judah, uh, the tribe of Judah into captivity. All right, now we're going to back up even further to 722 B.C. when the Assyrian kingdom defeated the northern ten tribes of Israel. 
And notice in first, or excuse me, Second Kings seventeen, verses twenty-four through thirty-four, the aftermath of the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. It says the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, from Kutha, and from Ava, and from Hamath, and from Sepharvaim, and settled them in the cities of Samaria in the place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. At the beginning of their living there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have carried away into exile in the cities of Samaria do not know the custom of the God of the land. So he has sent lions among them, and behold, they kill them, because they do not know the custom of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Take there one of the priests whom you carried away into exile and let him go and live there and let him teach them the custom of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom they had carried away into exile from Samaria came and lived at Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made. Every nation in their cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth, the men of Cuth, made Negro. The men of Hamath made Ashima. And the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. But they also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves priests of the high places who acted for them in the houses of the high places. They feared the Lord and served their own gods according to the custom of the nations from among whom they had been carried away into the exile. To this day, they do according to the earlier customs. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law or the commandments which the Lord commanded the sons of Jacob, whom he named Israel. So, the big difference again, between the destruction of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, is that the Assyrians, when they defeated the northern kingdom, they brought all these refugees into the land. And we just read about how when they came into the land, uh, God began to judge them. And so, and so they recognized that God was not happy with them, and so uh, they had uh, priests come in and teach them about the God of Israel. And so they began to worship the God of Israel. But the text says that they continued to worship all their other gods as well. In fact, it says that they even sacrificed their children to these gods. So, so, so that provides really important context uh, for our text. So, so these people uh, become known as Samaritans. And they're really important to the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. And of course, they're also very important to the story of the New Testament. And that context is very important because returning to Ezra chapter 4, in in verse 2, they claim that they worship the same God as the Jews. That they have embraced Judaism. That they're friends of God. But we just saw, they're not friends of God. No, they worshipped the true God, but they also worshipped all these other idols. And that's something that the first of the Ten Commandments says is not okay, right? That we are to worship God and God alone. So, verse 1 is absolutely correct when it says that these guys are the enemies 
of Judah and Benjamin. And so, and yet they come to the Jews with a very tempting proposal. And so imagine, you know, just imagine as you come to this text, the Jews toiling away at rebuilding their temple. You know, they've laid the foundation, but now they're working to build the structure, and you can imagine they're getting tired. They don't, they don't have cranes and bulldozers and things like that. They're trying to build this temple. They're tired. They're spending lots of money. And one day, this fancy caravan rolls into town. These people have cash. They've got warm bodies. And they say that they want to help us build our temple. They say, hey, let's work together. And, 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 and they probably said all the right things, right? You know, about worshiping God. And, 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 and again, it's, it's partially true. Like They did worship the God of the Bible. They say they've been doing it for a long time and, and they, they want to help worship Him. They, they want to join in building this temple and worshiping there. Now, if you're Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the leaders of the Israelites, it'd be really hard to say no, right? They've got a small workforce. Remember, these people have only been back in the land of Israel for a short time. They're still getting settled in their homes and, and rebuilding their lives and their farms. They've got limited amount of amounts of cash, and they are embarking on a very expensive and overwhelming project. They are building a temple to God. And of course, they might think, well, hey, you know, if we bring the Samaritans into this project, they'll bring some money with them and some more labors, and we can build God an even bigger temple. And God will get more glory and He will receive more praise because of this bigger temple to God. So so surely God wants that. Surely God doesn't care if we join arms with these guys to do something big for God. And and, and don't forget the diplomatic angle that's at, at, at stake here. This is probably the biggest thing. That if they refuse the Samaritan's offer, you risk starting a war with these guys. And the Jews are in no position to be fighting a war. I mean, they're just getting settled. They're small. They don't have any weapons. So so life would be so much easier if they just find a way to get along, kind of blend in a bit with the the other peoples living in the region, don't stand out as as belonging to the Lord. So it would be very tempting to say, yeah, grab a shovel, open your wallet, and let's work together. Of course, we face similar temptations all the time. Have you ever had someone who denies the gospel say to you, "Now we're basically the same. We worship the same God. And, and it's tempting to just say, yeah, sure. Yeah, we're, we're, we're all brothers. We all, we're all the same. You know, or, or maybe it's that you know, you're at, you're at work or you're at school and, and you think, you know, if, if, I just, if I just ignore this part of God's will, I can have so many more friends. I can get along with so many more people. God surely doesn't care if I just ignore this part of, of His will. And, and churches and Christian organizations deal with this all the time. You know, that, that if we make just a little bit of compromise... We can reach so many more people for Christ. We can have so much more influence. We we can keep our bank accounts full. 
we, we can avoid bad press. So, so, so let's just compromise a bit. Let's just partner with the world a bit. It's hard, right? We can all relate with, with the struggle that Jeshua and Zerubbabel surely felt in this moment as they're looking these people with money and power in the eyes. And yet the right answer for them is obvious. If they're honest with themselves. Because they know that, that, the, that the Samaritans are polytheists. And that their theology is fatally flawed. Right? Because the Bible is clear that either you worship God alone or you don't worship Him at all. And God will not tolerate rivals. And the law was also very clear about how to worship God. And if they remembered any of Israel's history, how had it worked out for Israel in the past when they tried to mix the worship of God with the worship of idols? When they tried to get along with pagans and idolaters and sort of blend the two together? I mean, it never worked out well. It always ended in God's judgment. So, so if they really value the blessing and the nearness of God, there is no way, no way that they can partner with these idolaters. And of course, on top of that, there's the fact that the Samaritans are going to prove to be very evil, very devious people throughout the story. You know, and so, and so I, they don't say it here. But you can almost be certain that they have an ulterior evil agenda in trying to come into town and and get involved in this building project. So as a result, notice the stand that Jeshua and Zerubbabel make in verse 3. They say, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel. Now, they don't mince words, do they? And they say that the Samaritans do not worship the same God because they don't worship an exclusive God. And so they say, buddy, you have nothing in common with us. We are not the same. And that's bold. And yet, it is absolutely true for them and it is still true for us today. Now keep your finger here and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Because this passage uh, takes the, 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 the principle that was behind this decision and it applies it to us as Christians in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And I want to read verses 14 through 18. And God says... Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial or Satan? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, 
and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, God is clear that that we as Christians are fundamentally different from the world around us. We are light. They are darkness. We are in Christ. They are in Belial or Satan. We are righteousness. They are unrighteousness. And and he says then that, that we must prioritize the favor and blessing of God over the friendship of the world. Now, now that might be costly at times. I mean, Jeshua and Zerubbabel, they could have really used the help. And they probably could have avoided a whole lot of heartache and persecution if they just would have found a way to get along with these guys. But they valued the approval and the blessing of God more than the approval and the blessing of the world. And so they did what 2 Corinthians 6 says. They remained separate. And it's important for us to just come to grips with the fact that faithfulness to Christ is going to be costly for us too. And it's going to mean missing out on the pleasures of sin at times. It may cost you a close friendship or a relationship. If you share the Gospel boldly, sometimes people are going to get mad. And they are not going to like what you have to say. And that's always hard. But we have to stand. Because we long for the promise that that God gives in 2 Corinthians 6. That if you come out and you are separate, you are faithful to Christ. What does he say? He says, I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me. And, And nothing... Nothing is more precious than that. Do you want to be welcomed by the world or welcomed by your Father? What's more valuable to to be a friend of the world or a son or a daughter of Christ? And it's so important that we emphasize regularly to ourselves and, and, and to each other that, that, that folks, I mean, we, are, we, we do not pursue holiness because we are cranky. Or because we don't like to have fun. Or because we want to be better than everyone around us. No. We pursue holiness because we value the nearness of God. We want to be close to Jesus. So, so in the strength of God's grace, say no to sin. Say, say no to ungodly alliances and, and relationships. And be close to God. It's going to hurt. But Christ is absolutely worth it. But we're moving on in the story. That the Samaritans, I mean, how do you think they felt when he said, We have nothing in common with you? Well, they were furious. And so, and so in response, verses 4 and 5 describe their opposition. So, so verses 4 and 5, returning to Ezra chapter 4. It says in verse 4, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So so the text tells us they're angry and and so they discouraged the people. Now, now the literal idea here is that they weakened their hands. And, And the text doesn't tell us how they weaken their hands. I think 
uh, that probably what is most likely is, is that they created some sort of, 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 sort of a, a trade blockage. So, so they stopped uh, economic flow, and, and so they uh, made it difficult for them to get, a, 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 get the food and the supplies that they needed. And of course, we can even see today that, that that's a common strategy, right? To, to block trade and trade embargoes and so forth. And, and we know how when trade doesn't move freely, it affects life very quickly. And then verse 4 adds that they also frightened them from building or they intimidated the Jews. You can imagine these people standing outside Jerusalem with their signs, you know, making noise, yelling at them, maybe standing along uh, roads or, or near trade places and, and, and just chanting at them and yelling at them and jeering and scaring them. And finally, verse 5 adds that they hired counselors all the days to, to frustrate their counsel, all the days of Cyrus. And that probably means that they bribed royal officials to, to, to work against the Jews. Now that's a big deal. Because the Jews are they're not significant. They don't have any pull in the court of Persia. So you pay a couple Persian officials to, to say, hey, you know, make life difficult for the Jews. The Jews don't have any recourse to fight back against that. And so, and so they were able to make life extremely difficult. And the text says that this continued all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, now Darius, uh, he becomes king in 522 B.C. So, so the, what's going on here is essentially uh, you have this, this challenge going on for roughly 14 years. From the time this construction of the temple began in 536, it says until uh, the days of Darius. Some 14 years, maybe 522 or so. And just imagine how rough and discouraging that time would be. You know, we, we, we moved from Babylon all the way back to Jerusalem. We came here to build a temple to God. And now we can't trade. We can't get the food that we need. Life is hard. And the king is working against us. And during those kinds of times, it's very easy to feel the emotions that we mentioned in the introduction. You begin to think, I'm the only one. Nobody cares. Nobody understands. It's never going to get better. My problems are the worst ever. And what's the use serving God? I mean, he doesn't help me out. He doesn't care. And whenever I try and do right, he just makes my life difficult. Can you relate to those thoughts? And how do you get through those times? What do you do when you begin to feel that way? Well, the author follows in verses 6 through 23 by doing something that is rather unique but, but very brilliant. He adds perspective by, by zooming out historically and by looking at the trial that the Jews were enduring in comparison to other trials by the people of God. And so he describes the pattern of opposition. Now, as I said in my introduction, uh, it's much easier to track this section if you keep the, a timeline handy so, so that you can visualize 
uh, what exactly is taking place in these verses. So, so notice that verse 5 ends by saying that, that these things happened until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. All right? So, so if we're thinking about Darius, so here's the reign of Darius. He's the Persian emperor. And it says that these things are happening until the early years of his reign. So, so he begins to reign in 522 B.C. But, but then notice that verse 6 jumps to a different time. It says in verse 6, Now in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So, so he mentions a new king, Ahasuerus. And, and we, of course, probably know that name from the story of Esther, right? So he is the king who, who ultimately will marry Esther, and Esther becomes his queen. And, and we know him today mostly by his Greek name, Xerxes. All right, same man. And you can see there that he reigned from 485 to 464 BC. So, so there's probably, there's roughly a 40 year gap between verse 5 and verse 6. So, verse 5 is in the early years of Cyrus, verse 6 is in the early years of Ahasuerus. Right? And that's really important to keep in mind. So, so again, the author is. is, is who, who, who himself, the author is writing somewhere around 400 B.C. So, so he, what he's doing is he is stepping back from the chronology of Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the building of the temple. He's stepping back and he's pointing out that the opposition that Jeshua and Zerubbabel faced was not a one-time thing. That it happened again and again and again. It happened again in the early years of Xerxes. Now, probably before the events in the book of Esther, right? Because once the story of Esther takes place, it'd be pretty dumb to start writing letters about how bad the Jews were. So, so it happened again. And, and he doesn't give us any specifics about this accusation that's made during the reign of Xerxes because, because that's not really the point. The point is simply to say that we shouldn't despair when we endure hostility because God's people have always faced opposition, and it has always been hard to serve God. And then, notice that verses 7-23 through 23 make another chronological jump. And let's go ahead and read verses 7-16. through 16. It says, then, uh, it says, And in the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabil, and the rest of the colleagues wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the text of the letter was written in Aramaic and translated from Aramaic. Rahum, the commander of Shim, in Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes as follows. Then wrote Rahum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their colleagues, the judges and the lesser governors, the officials, the secretaries, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations which the great and honorable Osnapar deported and settled in the, in the city of Samaria, and in the rest of the region beyond the river. So, so this is all from the Samaritans. This is the copy of the letter which they sent to him. To King Artaxerxes, your servants, the men in the region beyond the river and now, let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem. And they are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now let it be known to the king that if this city is rebuilt, and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and it will damage the revenue of the kings. Now, because we are in the service of the palace, 
and it is not fitting for us to see the king dishonored. Therefore we have sent and informed the king, so that a search may be made in the record books of your fathers. And you will discover in the record books and learn that the city is a rebellious city and damaging to kings and provinces, and that they have incited revolt within it in past days. Therefore that city was laid waste. We informed the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, as a result, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. Now, now I find it sort of fascinating uh, to read through this section uh, because, um, be, because it's, just, it's, it's a lot of nonsense, right? You know, so, so, so the Samaritans, they once again write this letter, and this time we actually get to read the letter. And uh, it sounds like a good political speech. I mean, it's full of mudslinging, half-truths, emotional manipulation. It sounds like a lot of the political jargon that we hear today. And, um, and, and so they start by warning about the Jews who came up from you. And they say they're rebuilding the city. They're rebuilding the walls. They're rebuilding the foundations. And based on what follows, well, well, well let, me, let me back up for a minute. So, so we're, we're now in the reign of Artaxerxes. Right? So it says in verse 7 that this is happening during the reign of Artaxerxes. And, uh, and, and notice that a couple of really important things take place during Artaxerxes' reign. Ezra leads the second return in 458, and Nehemiah leads the third return in 445 B.C. So, so based on what follows in this text, when, when he mentions the Jews who came up from you, He's probably referring to the people that came with Ezra in 458 B.C. And what seems to have happened is, is that when Ezra comes back, he inspires the people to begin building Jerusalem. So, so we'll get to this next week, or well, in a couple weeks. Uh, they finished the temple in 516 B.C. So, so the temple's done, but basically nothing has been happening in Jerusalem now for, for close to 80 years. Ezra shows up, and he gets the people excited, and they start to rebuild the city and rebuild the walls. And the Samaritans, they didn't like that. They're mad. And so they're determined to stop the Jews, and so they make harsh and ridiculous charges against them. They call Jerusalem a rebellious and evil city. And and then they shrewdly make make their way to the king's heart by saying, you know, if this city gets rebuilt they're going to stop paying taxes. Now, no politician wants to hear that, right? I mean, I don't want to lose my tax money. And uh, in verse 15, they invite Artaxerxes to search the record books and to see how threatening Jerusalem could be. Now, now that's a partial truth, right? Because because Israel had had some powerful kings. David and Solomon. and, And Hezekiah, for example, had rebelled against Assyria and had fought back and God gave him an incredible victory. And so, and so they say, you know, this city, it's got a history. But at this point in time, they are not a threat to Persia. And Jerusalem is a long ways from its former glory. And I think it's hilarious that they actually say in verse 16 that if this city is rebuilt, you will lose the entire province west of the Euphrates River. Now, the Euphrates River is right here. So they're saying, 
if this little city Jerusalem gets rebuilt, you're going to lose this whole territory. That's nonsense. It's nonsense. And yet, the king believes it. He listens intently. He, he searches the archives. He learns about Jerusalem's former glory. And then he sends the reply that we read in verses 17-22. through 22. It says, And the king sent an answer to Rahab the commander, to Shimshai the scribe, and to the rest of their colleagues who live in Samaria and in the rest of the provinces beyond the river. Peace. And now the document which you, has, which you sent to us has been translated and read before me. A decree has been issued by me and a search has been made. And it has been discovered that the city has risen up against kings in past days. That rebellion and revolt have been perpetrated in it. That mighty kings have ruled in Jerusalem, governing all the provinces beyond the river. And that tribute, custom, and toll were paid to them. So now issue a decree to make these men stop work. That this city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. Beware of being negligent in carrying out this matter. Why should damage increase to the detriment of the king? So you can see that, that he agrees with the Samaritans. And he commands them to stop the work. He says, go to Jerusalem and stop them from building. And you can imagine how happy that made the Samaritans, right? They get this letter and they're like, yes! And they get on their horses and they travel down to Jerusalem and they deliver it. And it says in verse 23, it says, as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes' document was read before Rahum and Shimshai the scribe and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and stopped them by force of arms. And you can imagine how devastating this had to be for the Jews. You know, because, because at this point, you know, they, they have just started working. So you know, Ezra shows up in town after 80 years of hardly anything take place. They get to work rebuilding their city. They're excited about everything that God is doing. And then here comes this armed force and they shut it all down. And, um, and the text never says this explicitly. But it is very likely that these events are the events that inspire the book of Nehemiah. Right? Because, because Ezra inspired the people to build. And then the Samaritans stopped it and they destroyed the work on the city and its walls. So, so, so probably all this is happening again right in here. Between the return of Ezra and Nehemiah, they start to build. The Samaritans show up. And they don't just stop the work. They actually destroy the work. And just to give us a sense of how devastating this was, turn over to Nehemiah chapter 1. So it should be just a few pages uh, to the right in your Bible. Nehemiah chapter 1. And notice what is said in verses 1 through 4. It says, The words of Nehemiah the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month Chislev in the twentieth year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. And when I heard these words, I sat down 
and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, now the reason I say that, that these two stories are connected is because it would be very odd for Nehemiah at this point to be devastated about the destruction of Jerusalem, which by the time that he's living would be 130 years ago. So, you know, we don't usually cry about something that happened 130 years ago. It makes more sense that he is devastated about something that just happened that he is hearing about for the very first time. So again, what seems to have happened to us, Ezra goes back. They get to work. They're making progress. Then the Samaritans get this letter from Artaxerxes. They come in, they shut it down, and they burn and destroy everything that the Jews have been working on. I mean, that would be devastating. That's why Nehemiah, you know, he weeps, he fasts, he prays. He's devastated about all this. And so in some, verses 6-23, through 23 are, are, they're basically a long parenthesis in the story of the first return. And it's all there to provide perspective for what comes next in verse 24. So back in Ezra chapter 4, notice the last verse of the chapter. It says, Then work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, now notice the time marker there. When does it say this is happening? The second year of Darius. So when does Darius reign? He begins in 522. So the second year of his reign is 520. So, what he's done here is he has backed up to the original story that we have in verses 1-5. through And the text makes that very clear with these time markers where it continually is placing these events within the reigns of the Persian kings. So now he's back where he began in verses 1-5 through and he is telling us that the work on the temple stopped. So, so they had started building the temple in 536. And, um, and it was a big deal. But then verses 1-5 through say that the Samaritans made their lives difficult and now verse 24 simply ends the story by saying that they succeeded in stopping the construction of the temple until the second year of Darius, which is 520 B.C. Now, now just think for a moment about the joy of chapter 3. They're building the temple. God is going to fulfill every promise that we read about in Isaiah and Jeremiah. Big things are ahead of us. And then contrast that with the emptiness of chapter 4, verse 24. I mean, we have, we have tried, we, we left everything. We traveled across the desert to come back to Israel to rebuild our temple, rebuild our lives. God's going to do everything for us that he said he was going to do in all those prophets. And here we are. The king hates us. We can't trade anything. We can't get food. We're stuck. Nothing's happening. And the narrator knew that reading this account would potentially be very discouraging for his readers as well. And that's why he includes verses 6-23 through 23 to add perspective to the hardships of following God. So, so I'd like to pull all this together into four conclusions. And the first conclusion is this. Evil always resists God's work. 
The point of verses 6 through 23 is to say that verse 24 is nothing new. Evil always resists God's work. You know, no, no, we like to think that, that, if, that if, I'm, if I'm serving God, well, if things are easy, then I must be doing something right. And if things are hard, I must be doing something wrong. But that's not how it goes. Evil will always resist the work of God. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 16, verses 8 and 9. He says, But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. And then he says, For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. You know, so Paul says, God is doing great things here. People are getting saved, and there are many adversaries. And that's always the way it is. When, when God is at work, you better expect that evil will show up and fight back. Evil always resists God's work. And secondly, keep perspective through hardship. You know, because we, we lose perspective all the time. You know, I mean, just as a, an example of this, I mean, I don't know how many times I've heard Christians say something like this Jesus has to be coming back soon because the world cannot possibly get any worse. And, and, you know, graciously, I want to think, why don't you read a history book? Like, the world has been a lot worse a lot of times. And just turn on the news, it's a lot worse in other parts of the world than it is here. I mean, it has always been hard to serve God. There has always been evil everywhere around us. But, but you know what? That also means that you are not alone in your hardship. Hebrews 12, verse 1 says that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who have been where you are, who struggled, and who went through hard times. And God's grace sustained them, and they walked by faith, and they were faithful to the Lord. So so don't be shocked by hardship. And don't believe Satan's lie that your trial is the worst ever. That nobody has ever been where you are. And that you can't make it. No, get some perspective. Step back and recognize that that's the way it always has been. And get some perspective, not just from history, but I'd also add from the people in this room. You know, Satan wants you to believe that you are all alone in whatever it is that is is weighing you down. But I can about guarantee there is someone sitting in this room who either is where you are or who has been. And they made it by the grace of God and they might be a wonderful resource to help you make it by the grace of God. So so keep perspective through hardship. And then a third application is be holy as God is holy. Don't compromise your faith for temporary relief from the hardships of life. Because as Jeshua and Zerubbabel understood, the nearness of God is worth far more than anything you can gain by compromising your faith. So stay faithful to Christ. And then fourth, anticipate the victory of Jesus. Now turn to Psalm 2. Turn to Psalm 2, and we'll close here in a moment. I think by far the most helpful perspective as we face opposition and hardship in this world is to remember that evil forces also resisted Jesus. 
And someday, the whole world is going to rise up in rebellion against Him. And look at what is said in Psalm 2. And this is a prophecy about the future. It says, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, speaking there of Jesus, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So that's referencing the fact that in the last day, the nations are going to rise up to defeat Jesus. And then verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. This is the Father speaking to Christ. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Now the whole world, the whole world is going to rise up in opposition to Jesus. And God laughs and Jesus will win. And, and so take heed to the last line of that psalm. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Father, we thank You so much for this passage and for the wisdom, the perspective that it provides. And Father, I pray that all of us would have the courage and the faith of Jeshua and Zerubbabel to stand on Your Word no matter the cost and to stay faithful even through heartache and opposition. And oh God, I pray for people in this room who are struggling through various challenges today that Lord, they would not lose heart. But that Father, they would run to You for strength run to their brothers and sisters in Christ, think on truth, hope in the promises of God, and most importantly, run to Christ who has endured every form of hostility and opposition possible. And God, I pray that we would long for the day that all of this will come to an end and Jesus will crush His enemies and bring in perfection and righteousness. So, Father, encourage us, strengthen us to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen.